Welcome to the University of Minnesota's IPM podcast for field crops. I'm your host, Anthony Hansen, and this month we'll be having a series of episodes come to you from the St. Paul campus, where my counterpart, Dave Nikolai, is interviewing a few folks, looking more on the agronomy side of things, but then also how that relates to our pest management, especially today. There is a higher risk potentially of seedling diseases coming up, so I wanted to give a bit of a focus on that. So with that, I'll hand it off to Dave. Good day. This is the Agronomy Update from the University of Minnesota Extension. I'm your host, Dave Nikolai, Extension Educator in Crops. Uh, Today is May 1st, 2023, and we thought we'd start out a little bit by reviewing uh, the crop condition report that was just published uh, as of the ending of the week for April 30th, 2023. In Minnesota, we had an opportunity to plant a little bit. Not a lot, but we had an opportunity to plant a little bit. The report indicates that corn planting reached 5%. Uh, soybean planting was recorded as 1%. Now, compared to last year, corn planting at this point in time, the report was actually just zero, and uh, that was it. However, the five-year average for this point in time was 23% in terms of total corn planted uh, with that. The other thing I want to mention uh, this morning and today is to talk a little bit about our subsoil moisture. Our subsoil report was rated as uh, 66% adequate uh, with 18% surplus in terms of the actual uh, moisture percentages uh, with that. So that's a little bit in terms of the uh, crop report, which is just a hot off the press uh, for the day on May 1st. Uh, We'd like to represent our uh, opportunity for our guests uh, on our podcast here today. Of course, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, who has been with us uh, last week and is operating our board in terms of uh, information and recording. Our special guest, though, uh, I'd like to turn it over to is Dr. Dean Melvick uh, from the University of Minnesota Extension uh, Plant Pathology. And Dean, maybe you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit Tell the folks uh, what your primary responsibilities are here in Minnesota. Hey, greetings, everyone. So I am a plant pathologist with the University of Minnesota Extension, and I have responsibilities both in extension and research focused on diseases of corn and soybean across the state of Minnesota. And you've been here for quite a few years, Dean. Uh, in terms of that, I understand that you are originally a, a Minnesota native. Is that correct? That I, that I am, although before I came here to the University of Minnesota, I was at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana for a number of years, um, where I learned a lot about corn and soybean disease issues there. Excellent, excellent. Well, we would start out a little bit of talking about, of course, weather here, and that's always on everybody's tip of their mind in, in situations, particularly this year. Uh, you know, we, we had a what I would call a more than cold April, you know, and what people are used to in, in terms of that and, and the temperature, although this has happened before, obviously. Uh, and we've had some wet situations. We had a little bit of a dry spell there, some warm temperatures a couple of days by 80s. But, you know, nonetheless, you know, we're, we're back down again here in terms of the temperatures. But the forecast, at least for this next week, is looking like we will have some warmer temperatures ramping back up here. 50s, 60s, maybe even touching 70s uh, before we get, might get a touch of rain this coming weekend. And a lot of this plays into when we think about plant diseases, uh, planting corn, planting soybeans in a different situations and, and, and realms. We have to keep in mind that for to disease to develop or to be concerned about it, there's certain things that have to come together. And that's usually in terms of the disease triangle. You want to give us just a little bit of a brief update when we talk about that. What does that really mean for producers and consultants? Yeah, that's a good point, Dave. You know, we've talked about that for years, but disease 
doesn't just always occur. In fact, it's still the exception. Normally, we get healthy crops, healthy stands. When we don't is when we have these three items that come together. As you mentioned, that has been often referred to as a disease triangle, and those are a susceptible plant, susceptible variety, hybrid, the presence of a pathogen, of which many pathogens are widespread in soils across the state. And the third thing is the conducive environment. And that may be cool, wet conditions for some seedling and seed pathogens, or it may be warm conditions for others. So those we need to think about how those conditions come together to create the, uh, the conducive conditions for each disease that we're concerned about. And right now, obviously, we're having, you know, cool soil temperatures. And we'll talk about it a little bit later uh, here today. But some of those diseases are going to be more prevalent under cooler conditions as opposed to uh, warmer conditions with that. And in terms of planting here in Minnesota, uh, we were visiting a little bit before we started the podcast today that we really have almost like three scenarios. We have crops that were planted uh, quite a bit earlier in southeastern Minnesota. Uh, Those are going to be emerging or close to emerging Uh, Then we have the southern and the central part of the state where corn and soybeans are just going to be actually be planted, hopefully, this coming week. And then, we, of course, we have northwestern Minnesota, which had been quite a bit colder. Uh, Snow not too long ago on the ground and and those types of things and situations with that. Let's talk a little bit about some of those crops that maybe were planted, you know, here a while ago in southeast Minnesota uh, and and coming up in there in that situation. Uh, Should we... Think about scouting there and looking at, at crop stands. And, and Seth, you can uh, come in here too and talk a little bit about that. Uh, what are some of the things that those growers need to be aware of uh, if they're out there taking a look at some of these fields in terms of uh, stand and also maybe uh, some of the things, what's the difference between a non-infectious cause of these uh, symptoms that they might be seeing versus something that's infectious? So maybe you can touch on some of those as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, a general point here is, you know, proper diagnosis, understanding what the real problem is. It's easy to overgeneralize saying, you know, X, Y, or disease, X, Y, or Z disease can be occurring widespread. But the fact is very few occur widely in fields in any particular year. You know, there are certain diseases that are favored by wet, cold conditions like pythium, which can often, it really attacks the seed and the very early emerging seedlings by its greatest extent, although it can cause post-emergence damping off. And another one is fusarium that can infect early and cause various levels of damage. Now, another issue to think about here, there's, it's not simply pythium versus fusarium. Each of these pathogens have many different types within them. We probably have 10 or 15 or more species of pythium and fusarium in Minnesota soils that are out there waiting for our crops to attack them. And they may be subtle infection, they may be severe infection, and they also are favored by different environmental conditions. So it actually gets quite complex. But those are the two categories, groups of pathogens, the fusaria, the pythium, that are most prone to infection when we have cooler soil conditions. Would we see both of those in corn or more in soybeans in Minnesota? See both of them in both crops, although there may be different species that infect corn and soybean. So let's just talk about one at, one at a time here. Let's talk about pythium in situations with that. What type of environment and what are some of the symptomology uh, that we should be aware of uh, when we make a visit to the field? Yeah, so pythium tends to attack, again, under cool, wet conditions. 
Although, again, there are some species that prefer warmer conditions, but just thinking about the more prevalent cool and wet favorable conditions for Pythium. That, in our experience, primarily attacks the seeds when they are pre-emergence, oftentimes when just the radical is popping out from the seed or maybe the, the hyphen, it's just swelling. So it, they tend to attack very early, although it can attack somewhat later, occasionally, and cause some root pruning. Will the seeds actually emerge from uh, at Pythium Often or not? they won't even emerge. It might just kill them right in the ground. Okay. Um, sometimes they'll emerge, but often it will kill them sooner than that. Well, and let's switch over maybe. Can we talk a little bit about Fusarium? Fusarium. Yes. Yes. Again, there's a range of different species there. They can do the same thing. They can cause this cause pre-emergence death or, or damping off. Or they can infect, as in the case of sudden death syndrome. Now, that's not a seedling disease, but it infects early, Fusarium vigiliformi, and we don't see the SDS until much later. But nonetheless, it starts out really infecting very early in the season. Dean, in terms of field observations, what can a grower do or what timing should a grower be mindful of if they're going to visit a field, do some early season scouting to try to make some determination of if they have a particular type of seedling diseases, might be Pythium, Fusarium, might be something else. What are some general guidelines that you would recommend that growers keep in mind when they do some of this early season scouting? There, there are, and it's very rare that there's only one thing happening in the field at, at this stage or in later in the summer. But, uh, you know, in a, in a very general way, seedling diseases, one thing they do is they cause you know, distinct coloration, discoloration or soft rotting, let's say the, the radical, the root system, or, or the emerging seed, seedling. And so that's one thing we can look at. And there are, there are subtle differences between pythium and, and fusarium, but the reality is to see those subtle differences, you have to get the seedlings at the right time. And when they're young and the soil is wet, they tend to degrade pretty quickly. And, but they're hard to diagnose in the field. And so we do have you know, an excellent plant disease clinic here at the University of Minnesota that can really help in, you know, with their expertise to diagnose these and other problems later in the season. But the seedling stages are, are a real challenge to diagnose properly. But there are really two important reasons why we should try to do that, even though it's difficult. One is to know what, what kinds of problems are particular fields prone to. And so we can tailor any sort of management or seed treatment practices toward those in the future. And the second point is, if we're using seed treatments, and of course most acres do have them, are they effective against the problems prevalent in that field? That can help us determine you know, which seed treatments might work best in the future as well. So I, I imagine that it's important, obviously, to know the field history, your, your rotation, but also uh, the topography. And some areas in a field, obviously, are going to be more prone to being wetter longer for, what, for any number of reasons uh, with that. Um, anything that you would do in, in terms of scouting or, or observing in a field situation if you were at least trying to ascertain whether or not uh, disease is present? You know, obviously, it depends how much it's been raining because if it's raining a lot and the soil's been staying wet, it doesn't matter where in the field really are sometimes. Some of these problems, certainly in say Pythium, are, tend to be more prevalent in the lower parts of fields. Okay. So uh, I just want to jump in here sure, a little bit because I think the issue that, we're, that we may have been facing the last few days to a couple weeks is we had some corn that was planted, some very small amount, but there was some corn planted back in the middle of April. 
So, you know, that corn was planted with some 80 degree temperatures. Soils were really nice, but then it got really cold. So what, what happens to corn, especially corn, in, in these very, very cold soils? Because they were, you know, we were in the, we had a lot of 30 degree temperatures. And so soils were kind of in the 40s for about a week. Uh, how does that corn, how would that corn look after being, um, you know, is it, is it basically like being in a refrigerator and we've taken it out and it's, it's actually not so bad? Or is this just a really, really bad thing to do here? So just kind of wonder how that, how that really cold temperatures that we had might affect the corn. You know, that, that's a question I think to some extent, you know, based upon obviously, you know, the, the, the field conditions in, in, in terms of where it was at in situations with that. I, I think one thing to I wanted to tag on to that is what about the corn that was planted but not yet, you know, emerged? And I think that's probably one of the questions in terms of the, you know, seed treatments. And I'll, Dean, you spent time in, in Illinois, and you've seen this over the years. On average, we think about, you know, from a fungicide standpoint, whether it's, whether it's obviously corn, you know, maybe in soybeans, but how long can we count on the viability of that fungicide seed treatment to be effective, so, you know, warmer temperatures and in a colder temperatures? What's been your experience? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the thing is, it's, in all honesty, as we all know, the number of active ingredients being put on soybean and corn seed has been increasing dramatically. And those pr- different products have different properties. You know, the answer was much simpler 15 years ago when we only had a few products that were widely used. Now we have a lot more. And they have different levels of systemicity or ability to enter the plant and become systemic. 15, 20 years ago, we would say that most seed treatments probably didn't have a lot of effect after two to three weeks after planting. And that's still true for some of them, but some of them probably have a longer activity. Although I, you know, I can't get into all the specifics of all the different products, but some of them enter the plant and become systemic. They're inside. A lot of them still don't, but some of them are that have that property. Well, it seems to me that you know, based upon our observations, particularly if we, even if we go back to last year, and we were in the cold temperatures and, and so forth, and the emergence came later, that we were able to follow through and still have a very good good crop, and in a lot of cases, perhaps, and even in a wet year, if, you know, two to three weeks. Uh, later, which is really extreme in terms of being in the ground in, in that regard, even in our colder temperature, Seth, uh, with that. But I don't know if you would agree that, you know, we could still look at that. And I think our forecast uh, this coming week looks like we're going to have warmer temperatures, obviously, more warmer air temperatures. The soil will lag behind that and it'll start to warm up there. We're going to have rain. I mean, we're always going to have rain at some point in time. And, you know, it sounds like this coming weekend we will have some showers again. But, uh, you know, None, nonetheless, we have that, you know, that protection. I, I think maybe, Seth, your question is, what about the corn that might be just already merged or coming up uh, yeah, through that? And that's a little bit easier to ascertain whether or not uh, that's been the situation with that. I think if there's any, the few beans that were planted, you know, they would be basically at a point where just, we were talking before, the seed swollen up. Yeah, and actually, I, I asked a, a kind of a difficult question just because I thought it was interesting that we had a year where we planted where we did have really extended period of quite cold conditions that we don't we don't normally get this kind of thing. We tend to be on a general incline in terms of temperature pattern. So as the soils warm up, then we're generally in pretty good shape. We we tend to have some cold snaps come along, but 
this year in particular when we had just the soil just had barely warmed up on top, especially because we had those really hot days. I think we had deeper soil um, was was cooler at that time. It was still calendar date was early. So I just think we have a little bit different situation this year. And I think some of that corn took a long time to come out. And I haven't heard necessarily how it is. So it's it's probably just more of a question for people to wonder about as as well out there. Well, certainly with, with uh, cold temperatures, we're worried about inhibition and chilling, imbibing, and, and that type of thing. Hopefully, we might turn the corner on uh, on that. Uh, I'm going to ask you both a, a hard question, maybe on, on the soybeans, but since we are going to be warming up and we are hopefully going to have warmer soil temperatures, do you see a, uh, a good need here for s- those soybean uh, seed treatments from a fungicide standpoint going forward here in, in Minnesota? What's been your uh, experience. We know there's some opinions from across the river in Wisconsin, but uh, in in terms of that, are are we going to be beneficial? And I think we have to think about it. We're not necessarily going to get an increase, but more from a protection standpoint. So maybe we talk a little bit about uh, treated or untreated seed going forward here uh, now past May 1st. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a few comments. You know, there's, it, it's, it's hard to generalize, because, again, because every field is different in terms of the environment and in terms of the pathogens that are in those fields. And seed treatments vary widely in terms of their activity. The reality is, most fields, um, disease is still the exception. You know, we can get a very good stand much of the time without having a really broad-spectrum seed treatment package. Although sometimes we'll get to conditions where they really do provide a benefit. So it's hard to predict exactly what the situation will be, and that's part of the equation, I think, for a lot of folks in choosing a seed treatment. Um, There's that risk aversion, uh, that protection category. So you would really look at individual field situations, drainage patterns, et cetera? Yes, that along with what do we know about what have been the prevalent pathogens in a field that we can potentially control with the seed treatment. Again, we have a broad spectrum of seed treatments that have activity of, against different pathogens. You know, the, seed, the companies that produce these know where the limitations were of the products that were used widely 15 years ago. So many of them developed other products that hit the weak point. So our complexity of seed treatments is increasing as well as our spectrum of high activity. If We go to a, a broad spectrum product with many different seed treatment active ingredients on it. So it's, there's no simple answer, but the key thing is to have, we know fields that are particularly prone, and we know which seed treatments have greatest activity against those problems. You know, our odds of having a really good return on those products is highest. Yeah, and I, I, Dean brings up a really, really important point here is that um, the activity of these products and the biology and the, the Honestly, the economic viability or the economic return for farmers is based on positioning the right product for the right, you know, risk um, uh, in individual fields. Um, And so Dean's absolutely right. I think the way to use these products is position them in fields for soybean, for instance, position them in fields where there's been a known problem of of, um, uh, disease and ideally, we actually have the disease um, uh, screened, and so you know exactly what disease it was. 
And so you can have a product, a seed treatment, um, a fungicide that works on that specific disease. Then you, that's a position where the farmer should feel good about that investment because because you're targeting a specific known issue with a product that has efficacy over it. Unfortunately, the problem you know that I see among most farmers is that they're using these things completely prophylactically. And yes, it makes them feel a little bit better um, and maybe helps them sleep a little bit better, but without much knowledge of, of whether individual fields may differ in terms of disease, uh, and certainly very few farmers I talk to really know what diseases are present in fields. And it's, and it's difficult. I mean, we, your, your plant disease pl- clinic gets lots of samples in, and, and it's not always a conclusive answer for farmers. And those are the, among the samples that come in, and, and we know that most farmers aren't even sending samples in. So, um, you know, I don't, it's not much of a question or maybe more of a, of a rant, I think, but I think you were really on to something in, in terms of helping position these products. And that's really the best way, I think, to use these seed treatments on soybean specifically. Any other comments, Dean? Yeah, that's that's a good point. You know, whatever we can do, you know, where we have, say, drainage, you know, certainly that can improve the environment in some fields and make the risk of seedling diseases lower. And then there is some variety differences as well. Even if there isn't a high level of resistance, certainly for a lot of diseases, there are different levels of susceptibility. And we're talking about soybeans here, obviously. Yeah, soybean and corn, um, both. Um, so I'll leave it at that. All you know, right. I would even, you know, go on to charge farmers with, you know, a good starting point is if they're a farmer that have used seed treatments, you know, on all their acres of all their soybeans, maybe, maybe try to think of a situation where they can target some of those. So maybe they're early planted, maybe they're, um, poorly drained fields, maybe some, some varieties that are, um, more susceptible and maybe they can next year they could just purchase half of their seed seed treated or something like that, and then try to try to try to best deploy those treatments onto acres that are going to be more likely to have a response or more likely to protect um, their investment on those. And that might be an easy way to help farmers kind of move that direction is maybe try to split up their sales or their purchases um, by some treated and some not. If you choose not to use a soybean seed treatment, say, for example, are, is there anything else uh, from a, an agronomic or cultural situation uh, that we can do here in Minnesota? Well, on a general rule, if we can increase uh, soil drainage, increase drying rates, um, allow it to warm up faster, it can eliminate some of the or reduce some of the problems that we've talked about. Well, you know, obviously, you know, that and, and planting considerations in terms of that. I think in a, a lot of our cases, you know, now that we're at the 1st of May, mm-hmm. um, I think these planters are obviously are going to roll and, sure. unless they're inhibited by, you know, wet temperatures and in terms of uh, rainfall or something that comes in, uh, you know, in terms of that. But that seems to be what the trend is there. Let's um, bring this back home here a little bit together in terms of what do we need to be aware of? And we talked about both corn and soybeans, once again, in terms of seedling diseases, these from the standpoint that tend to be a little bit more common that uh, growers, again, should be aware of, perhaps spend some time studying, learning a little bit more about, but trying to recognize some of the symptoms. Again, I think we mentioned, obviously, pythium. 
And you also mentioned, uh, in terms of that fusarium. Fusarium. Yeah, right. We didn't really talk about rhizoctonia here. Does, does that play into this as well? Yeah, it, it does. Let's talk about that a little bit. I didn't mention that yet because we were focused on cool, wet conditions. All right. You know, some of them uh, are really favored by warmer conditions. And so, again, so if some of the fusarium, some of the pythium are really favored by the cooler conditions, whereas the rhizoctonia and phytophthora really are favored to infect the plants under warmer conditions. And what would be warmer? You I'd say 65 and above. Air, air temperature, air, soil? Soil temperature. Soil temperature, okay. Yeah, as a general idea. Some of them do a little better when it's above 70. So something like rhizoctonia, you know, it tends to be worse if planting is delayed until, say, because of you know very wet soil until late May. And it starts to dry up enough to get out there and by then, of course, the sun is typically intense. The soils warm up fast, and you might get some more rain. That's the ideal condition for rhizoctonia, which can be very, very damaging to stands. Well, I think you, you also alluded to knowing a little bit about your variety. Yes. Obviously, both it's corn and soybeans and, and tolerance and, and resistance in there, but those are good tips and things that you have to keep in mind when you're going out and looking, and then we have talked before about that these are infectious situations you may have abiotic or non-infectious, poor planting conditions, something else that might be deep planting, um, you know, crusting. Uh, Seth, anything else that comes to mind? Well, yeah, obviously. I mean, these these things are what leads us to increase our risk, right? We're talking about things like crusting and other problems that happen after, after planting. So, um, you know, working to avoid um, or reduce the risk of problems like that. Um, you know, a lot of farmers always want to ask me about crusting and, you know, suggest we just plant higher seeding rates and things like that. But the reality is crusting is mostly caused by this um, heavy pounding rains on, on open soils. And so if we can have more residue cover, uh, we tend to reduce the amount of things like crusting. So uh, there's there's give and take. So that's a perfect example of a time when, you know, planting no-till might um, cause us more problems in terms of reducing soil temperatures, um, you know, may may provide a, more of an opportunity to have an extended emergence period and may open ourselves up to some, some seedling diseases. Um, on the other hand, it probably helps things like crusting and some other issues like that. So, um, th- you know, there's a lot of these are big systems, and there's a lot going on in that. A lot of a lot of variables to take in, into account for sure. Good information, uh, Dean. Anything else that you'd like to mention at this point? Uh, thinking about what's happened and where we're going here this spring. Yeah, I think I think a lot of good points. Seth Seth brought up the, the key point. These are really complex environments in the field, and you know we can talk about a disease, but it really isn't occurring in the absence, along with a bunch of other conditions that bring it on. Sometimes we have, many times we have wet, cool conditions and we think, oh, we might really have a problem, but in fact we don't, right? We don't have all the conditions coming together to really create the disease issue. Sometimes in our own field trials, we do everything we can to create a disease so we can test the product, for example. We irrigate, you know, we inoculate with the pathogen. We put a susceptible variety out there. We think we do all the things we need to create the ideal disease triangle. We still don't get the disease. The thing is, most of our crops, they've been bred to be really very resilient in a lot of conditions. So that's something to keep in mind. And it's not just one thing that's occurring that 
causes these significant issues to happen. It's usually a number of things. And if people want a good introduction to this on the University of Minnesota you know, Extension website, if you go under crops and you look, uh, you have a section on diseases. I do. And, yes. uh, and obviously we have information on growing corn and soybeans, but you know, the planting that we talked about last week in terms of planting time, a lot of that good information is there. So search, Google, whatever you need to on those, on those sites. We've kept those uh, up to date. Uh, and there's a, there's a good description of the diseases. So if you need a, a primer or an introduction to that, there's also a lot of other good, obviously, information on the web from other land-grant universities. Uh, I know there's a you know, farmer's guide to soybeans and a farmer's guide to, to corn diseases that's, that's out there published by the APS. So there's a lot of things that people can touch base with and hopefully, but get a, get a third opinion here as, uh, as we go forward with that. So we know that you know, the corn and beans, um, obviously a lot of it will go in. Uh, just briefly, I'll touch base. Uh, sugar beets starting to be planted in Minnesota here as well. So things are, are looking good. They have their whole set of issues, obviously, in, in, in planting that situation. But uh, they really want to get those folks, get that in the ground as well. So some of those growers are, be, are going to actually be doing three things uh, at once. But I, I think we're actually we're concerned about soil temperature, and that has an influence in here. But at this point, Seth, I, I think people are looking a little more strongly on that calendar. For sure. I think uh, it's time It's time to get going, but, um, you know, we have to also um, acknowledge that we have a big state north to south and there's a lot of variation out there. So while some farmers may be out today in southern Minnesota and certainly by tomorrow there's going to be a lot of folks going, that would be uh, Tuesday the 2nd. Um, you know, if we look to northwest Minnesota, uh, in the Red River Valley, it could be a couple weeks before we see significant movement up there. And so, um, yeah, I think it's it's important for us to acknowledge that there's a, a variety. And even, you know, some of these areas where we were last week, Dave, where they um, Broughton, where they got six inches of rain, there's going to be there's going to be some challenges getting into some of those fields, um, even with 70 degrees and and windy conditions coming up. Um, there's going to be some spots that are still held out, and so. I think everybody's going to be going hard um, this week, um, uh, and if they're not, they're they're going to be wishing wishing that they were. I think. Well, the, the bottom line is we still have time, and a lot of our applied research we indicated last week. You know, the fifteenth, we're only probably losing you know, two or three percent. It's not a major situation here. I mean, people will want to get it in. I understand that. In you know, in in terms of that, but. Uh, yeah, um, sorry, Dave. I was I was answering the wrong question. I didn't know you were fishing for that answer. But yes, you're absolutely right. It's still early. Yep. We still have a lot of time, both in southern Minnesota and in northwest Minnesota. You know, the calendar dates, we can still maximize yields, um, you know, based on historical um, yield trends for both corn and soybeans. Um, you know, we're in kind of a sweet spot this week for both crops. I think planting the first week of May is actually really good for both crops. And uh, as we talked about before we went on the air, you know, the end of the season, mid-season and end of the season is really where these crops are really created. Um, so the real impact is what happens later. We're kind of setting the stage a little bit. Um, but in terms of the, the maximum the best planting date in any particular year, we can still have really, really good yields going out into the next few weeks um, everywhere in the state. So um, certainly not a huge rush. Um, I just know that, you know, getting things out earlier tends to be better for us, um, but uh, we're, we're still in really good shape. 
Well, thank you very much. Uh, I guess that's what we wanted at least to cover. Uh, and Dean, if you don't have anything else, maybe you have one more thing. Yeah, I have one more thing. Dave mentioned a few resources that are available to help understand diseases. And one more I would like to put a plug in is for the Crop um, Protection Network, which has a lot of good resources. And, and Seth, I think you're involved with a bunch of agronomists on, a, on another web-based uh, information platform. And what, what can you say about that? That's the Soybean Research Information Network. So that's SRIN, or SRIN, or SRIN. I'm not sure how you'd pronounce it, but it's S-R-I-N, I think, dot .info or dot .com. I'm not sure. But Soybean Information, Soybean Research Information Network. Uh, it's, it's housed at Iowa Soybean, but it's supported by the United Soybean Board. Uh, and there's a lot of good resources from uh, a lot of different places beyond just the agronomy community um, on, that, on that site. In including plant pathology and disease information on there. Yes. Well, very good. Well, we'd like to thank our guests, uh, Dr. Dean Melvick, University of Minnesota Extension of Plant Pathologist for Corn and Soybeans, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, a University of Minnesota Extension Soybean Specialist, uh, for being here today for this particular podcast. Uh, stay tuned for uh, next week. I think we're going to jump into weed control uh, because that's going to be on the offing. And, you know, we can't forget about the need for that pre-emergent herbicide to be timely to help us uh, as we go forward through the cropping year. So this has been uh, Dave Nikolai with University of Minnesota uh, Agronomy Update and Extension. Thank you for listening. <music>